Good morning. For our scripture reading today, we are in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. And you can find this in your bulletin on page 6 to read along. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Tychius, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. This is it. The conclusion to our study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, when we got to that first word in the reading, finally, some of you said amen, right? Finally. Uh, finally done. Um, what a joy and a feast to study this. But let's pray uh, together one last time as we finish up this great book. Jesus, we thank you for carrying us along these last couple months as we have um, uh, dived deep into your word and into your good news. And we pray that you would bless us one more time as you have in the past, uh, filling our hearts with what's true, filling our hearts with your spirit, your son, Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would come now with power and that you would speak to us. We, we need to hear from you. Our great hope is that you promise that you will speak. And so we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. It was an emotional roller coaster for me watching the Survivor Diaries. I don't know if any of you uh, saw this CNN documentary just this past week when it aired. Uh, it chronicled the journey 
of Adrian Hazlitt Davis, whose life as a professional dancer was shattered, literally, at the Boston Marathon, at the bombings, uh, one year ago this month. And as a result of the violence, she needed to have her lower left leg amputated, and together with it, her dreams as a dancer, until, after uh, battling various stages of grief and PTSD, uh, numerous procedures, and together with the support of her husband, Adam, and the aid of cutting-edge prosthetics technology, just last month, finally, danced publicly for the first time. Uh, an incredible story, a roller coaster of a story, as it's been for anyone that's tracked the event and the aftermath of the Boston Marathon. I, I don't know where you were or how you experienced it at all. I do remember distinctly last year, uh, upon hearing of the news of the bombings, uh, scrambling to the computer and to the phone, texting folks, trying to figure out, is Daniel Lautzenheiser okay? Daniel, who is here today? Because he ran in the marathon, we knew he would be. Christy Cray as well. Are they okay? Where are they? Uh, a nerve-wracking time for all of us. And just a reminder that we live in a unique time and in a new world. Uh, this post-11 age of terrorism in which we now live. I mean, who would have ever thought just several years ago that words like ground zero or terrorist or vigilance would become a part of our normal everyday vocabulary? Who would have ever thought? And yet I wonder if even this might uniquely prepare us to understand a passage like the one we're looking at today. A passage which speaks about what's often described as spiritual battles, spiritual warfare, the inward and outward warfare between good and evil that surrounds us, whether we see it and recognize it or not. So we'll look at this passage and really we'll just take a peek at three different things that I think the Apostle Paul brings to us, and it's these three. A faceless enemy, a fighting community, and an unfolding victory. First, a faceless enemy. Secondly, a fighting community. And thirdly, an unfolding victory. Shall we take a peek? Then we'll pause and take some questions for discussion afterwards as we learn. First, a faceless enemy. Paul urges in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong. And then he tells us how we can be strong. He says, put on the full armor of God, spiritual armor, verse 11. And then in verse 12, he explains why we need to be strong and fight and put on spiritual armor. This all-important verse here, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And of course, here he's not referring to human or political rulers or authorities or powers, but rather spiritual rulers or authorities or powers. In other words, the devil and demonic forces of darkness. 
The apostles telling us, telling the Ephesian church, you, you may not see it, but it's there. You may not see them, but they are there. Spiritual forces of evil that operate behind everything that's dark in this world. We might see their effects, their work, if you will, whether in poverty or injustice, whether in immorality and sin, racism, promiscuity, materialism, the evil of tyrants, selfishness in my heart, in your heart, spiritual indifference, confusion, hard at work, even if we can't see them. And so Paul takes us, as it were, sort of behind the scenes to help us understand that beneath the surface and beneath surface appearances, an unseen spiritual battle is raging, blinding us to the devastating power of sin, dressing up selfishness and sin, making it look attractive to us, helping us to make good things look like God-like things to us, that we would give our whole lives to them. Whether if they're a friendship, a person, a job, a dream. The way in which their schemes include stoking up fear in our hearts if you've ever been so afraid that you become spiritually and morally paralyzed. The fear of a decision, the fear of other people. The way in which they're hard at work creating tensions and conflict in our relationships just by tweaking things just a little bit to make it ever so hard to love one another or simply to throw in distractions that, are, that get our attention off the priorities of God or adding just enough frustration to our lives like a, a long, cold winter that won't end. <laughs> Maybe. Hoping that we might just give up or give in more easily. Now, I know that somebody out there today is saying, understandably saying, I can't believe an intelligent person could actually believe in this kind of hocus pocus. I mean, it's sort of like asking me to believe in unicorns, just really bad, evil ones, I guess. But understand, I mean, even logically speaking, if you could follow me for a second, even logically speaking, consider this. If you can believe in God, or if you can believe in some, some kind of personal form of good that you can't see, isn't it logically permissible and consistent to believe that there might also be a form of personal evil that you also can't see? I mean, I think it it just sort of stands to simple reason and logic to say it might not be easy for me to get my mind around and I might even resist it, but it is possible. It must be possible, but not just logically, even experientially. I mean, I wonder, have you ever tried to change? Have you ever tried to overcome a personal vice or maybe even an, an addiction? Has that battle ever felt like something that's just bigger than you? Have you ever walked away saying like, I've expended all the energy I can and yet it feels like something or someone is warring against me in making progress? What if it's more than just a feeling? 
What if experientially we too can testify whether or not you believe in God, but because you've been around the block in life, that maybe indeed there is a battle waging behind the scenes. And so maybe if we can just start to get our minds around it, and I'm including those of us that might be professing Christians and may have been for many years and yet are not attuned to what's being proposed here in this passage, do we understand that our biggest struggle is not against flesh and blood? It's a change of perspective that the apostle is inviting us to. Again, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That my ultimate struggle is against the sin and selfishness of my own heart. But from there, there's a whole host of cheerleaders and manipulators that are trying their hardest to get me to dive right into the darkness of my own sin. Do I understand that my biggest struggle right now is not my child that won't listen to me, but perhaps a struggle against spiritual forces of evil that are right in the midst of what's going on to try to derail me and my kid from seeing Jesus and his grace for us. That my biggest problem isn't my boss or a co-worker that just won't get in line. Though as hard as they might be to deal with and to live with and to work with, our struggle is not ultimately against flesh and blood. Your boss isn't the enemy. Your struggle is not ultimately against cold winters. Your struggle is not ultimately against A laundry machine that's breaking down. Against a tree that falls onto your car. Against a bank account that just seems to be running too dry, too quick. Ultimately, can we start to understand that larger than everything, beyond what we can often see, is a spiritual battle at war around us. And among us. Have you considered that? And would you today? A faceless enemy in our midst. But secondly, we're pointed to a fighting community. We're called to be and to become a fighting community. You see, because one of the main goals of the passage is to change our attitude, our mindset as a church. And of course, when we say fighting community, we're not saying a church that yells at each other a lot. We're talking about a church that bands together as soldiers, recognizing that we're in a battle. And so the apostle uses words like armor and words like struggle, which in the ancient Greek uh, literally referred to hand-to-hand combat. And the apostle refers to the devil's schemes in verse 11. This word schemes, which is uh, sort of a military tactical kind of word. Strategies. And again, we have repeated phrases like take your stand and stand your ground and stand firm in verse 11, 13, and 14, which evokes a, a picture of soldiers standing in the battle line holding fast against an enemy. And the enemy's assault. 
combat language, military terminology that invites us to ask, does this describe the way that we live daily the life of faith? Uh, with, with a sense of vigilance, a, a proper sense of vulnerability, even urgency in the way that we strive to grow in faith, in the way that we strive to grapple with the good news of Jesus, even for those of you that might be investigating the Christian faith. Uh, to know that as hard as you might be trying and as much as you may be wanting to understand that there actually is opposition behind the scenes to your own soul, understanding and seeing these things. Or if you're a longtime Christian that's trying to grasp the implications of the love of Jesus and the grace of God in your life, that there's a battle against you getting it and living it and celebrating it. Do you live this way? Do we, dear friend? And so the apostle calls us to to a fighting kind of a faith and a fighting kind of a praying and a fighting kind of an encouraging of one another. First of all, a a fighting kind of faith. He, He says, put on the full armor of God in verse 13 and verse 11. And he expands the metaphor in verse 14 and following. He says, stand firm with a belt of truth buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He gives us here six pieces of military armor, a belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, sword, all of which Paul is using to convey to us all the spiritual resources that are given to us in Jesus Christ. Truth and righteousness, the good news of peace and faith and salvation and the word of God. And oftentimes people will come and take this passage and break it down and, and sort of communicate as though you need to grab each of these components as separate items. I think more of what Paul is doing here is he's asking us to remember All that Jesus has already given us in his salvation, in the gospel of grace. Because everything we have here are in fact echoes of words and ideas that he's already presented from chapter 1 all the way through here to chapter 6 in this letter to the Ephesian church. When he talks about truth in chapter 4, he talks about the truth that is in Jesus. When he talks about righteousness, again in chapter 4, he reminds us that God is renovating those who are in Christ. He's giving you a new you, making you and conforming you into the moral beauty and righteousness of Jesus. That's good news. You're changing. He's talking about peace here. And again, in chapter 2, he says, God himself has given his son to be our peace, reconciling us. Like former enemies now to God. Where we can call him Father. And in God, in Christ, now we can be at peace with one another. No No matter how different we might be. Former enemies though we might be. Jesus reconciling people of different races and economic backgrounds, people that are sinners against one another now can call each other brother and sister. 
When he talks about faith in chapter 2, of course, he talked about the importance of understanding that salvation is through faith in Jesus, not works. It's a gift. It's not what you do and how you perform. So Jesus isn't going to kick you out if you have a bad day. And he's not going to love you more because you had a good one either. Because all of life is by grace, and grace means all you have to do is open the arms of your soul, it's called faith, and say, Hosanna, Palm Sunday. Praise the Lord. And salvation, he talks about everywhere in this letter, but in Ephesians 1, he talks about the gospel, the good news of your salvation. In other words, when Paul says, put on the armor of God, he's not saying go out and do something new. He's not saying do a bag of hocus pocus tricks. He's not saying work a little bit harder to make sure that you're defensible against the attacks of the enemy. He's saying grab a hold of all that you've already been given in Jesus, your Savior. Grab a hold of the good news of God's grace. Celebrate it. Recall the promises of God. Word for word, replace the lies of the devil in your head with the truth and the promises of Jesus. Don't let his story engulf your life and define you, the devils. Let Jesus' story become yours. Because his life now counts as your life. And your life counted as his when he was judged on the cross, poured out the wrath of God upon him that you might be forgiven and free. This is how we do battle. To believe that Jesus is indeed all that he said he would be. He calls us to a fighting kind of a faith. He calls us to fighting prayer in verses 17 and 18. If you read it literally, it says this, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, while praying in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. In other words, prayer is how we wield the sword of the spirit. Prayer is how we do battle. Prayer is doing battle. I just want to make one simple point here. Do you pray? Like, life is at stake. Do you pray like you're in a war? It's what the apostle is telling us the nature of prayer is. It's fighting talking to God. Not just talking to God. John Piper, a preacher, author, teacher... So helpful in one of his books when he describes prayer in this way. Life is war, he says. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer, you feel weak in prayer? I do. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie. For the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Friends, Ephesians is so rich in reminding us 
that one of the greatest blessings of being in Christ is that we can call God daddy. And he wants us to come to him and call him father. And with all the bumbling sort of helplessness and dependency of a child, just to spill your guts before God and bring everything that's on your heart, not to edit yourself because Jesus gives you that kind of freedom of access to a God you can call your father. Yes. But do you also know your God as the Lord of hosts, the commander of all the armies? Do you know prayer not just as talking with your father, though it is always that, a child unto a father, but also a soldier with a wartime walkie-talkie? That talking to God in prayer is not just shooting him a text message or Facebook messaging him, not just passing him a note, but it's crying out for life and death, whether for your sake or for another person's sake or for this neighborhood's sake. To say, God, you must come and you must send your king with all the power of the cross. You must defeat your enemies and defend us from your enemies and you must extend your kingdom and we have this promise, even the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Do you pray like that? Lastly, do you encourage one another like that too? Fighting encouragement. And so we talk about community and it's great to have friends and it's vital for life to have friends. But do you see one another in community as fellow soldiers on a battlefield? Do you? Or are we just playing church here? Because if you've got nothing else to do on Sunday morning or Wednesday, I do, I do, I could. I mean, really? We just plain church? Or do we know that we're in the midst of a war? And so, in his final words, Paul can't stop urging the Ephesian Christians to what you might call wartime relationships. He models it for them in verse 19 when he says, Pray for me. Pray for me. Use that wartime walkie-talkie for me because I need it. And I'm not going to make it without you. Have you said that to someone before? You know, maybe you're in a small group. You go around the circle, do the prayer request thing. You just start tossing out whatever comes to your mind. Have you done it lately? Have you shared your life and your needs with another person lately to say, pray for me because I ain't going to make it without you. And God working his spirit through you and through your prayer. In verse 21, he says, Tychicus, our dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. This reminder of how important it is for us to be vessels of encouragement, strengthening fellow troops in Christ for the battle. To lift each other up when we're down. To remind each other of the promises of the gospel. Because sometimes that armor feels too heavy to carry myself. You need someone else to put it on together with you. Because we can't do this alone, friends. That's not just a slogan. That's a reality. We cannot do this life and battle of faith alone. So Paul offers a final word of 
blessing of peace and grace in verses 23 and 24. Peace to the brothers and sisters. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love to encourage and bless and strengthen and pronounce God's promises upon each other. Because we're in a war. A fighting community. What can that look like here at Grace Meridian Hill? Thirdly and lastly, briefly too, an unfolding victory. You find in this passage not only a faceless enemy and a fighting community, but also finally an unfolding victory. See, one thing we have to keep in mind here in this passage is that the apostle isn't calling us to be strong in ourselves. He didn't say be strong, suck it up and buck up and get out there and be tough. He says, no, you're weak and I know and you know it too. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Because you can't do it and neither can I. But God can. But God can. And in fact, God has. See, one of the fascinating things about this passage is that even as the Apostle Paul talks about the armor of God, scholars will point out, and it's very clear if you go there, that throughout the prophet Isaiah, the exact same language is found of a breastplate of righteousness and a belt of truth and all these pieces of armor and guess who's putting it on? It's God. God who is the true warrior fighting on our behalf. Do you know looming behind this passage is not ultimately a call for you to fight, but the story of a God who fights for you. A God who went to battle, a battle that you surely would have lost, and even today would, if he were not a warrior for you. God is the primary fighter, and it's his armor that we wear. And even here, we're reminded again and again, That we're called not just to a deep sense of vulnerability as much as that needs to humble us. But a deep sense of victory because if God is fighting, that means we win. And the story, dear friends, of Palm Sunday is the story of God in flesh. Jesus Christ himself. Who rode up in a donkey. Which was a symbolic way of saying, I am the legitimate king here. It's what kings rode on. Not chariots, but donkeys. Kind of like a stretch limo, slow and confident. It's why it caused trouble. It's why it, along with the other things he had been teaching for three years, within five days led to his rejection, betrayal, crucifixion, and death. See, here was a king that came not to take power, but to give power. 
A king that didn't seek first and foremost to exalt himself, but to lay his life down. A king who came to save, not by killing, but by dying himself. A king who ascended his throne, a throne that was a Roman cross. A king who died for you and me, the king of grace, the king of glory. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. The king who, after he was killed, was raised up again, exalted at the right hand of the Father. And we are told together with him, those who entrust him, who trust in him will be raised together with him. Ephesians 2, 5, we were told God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 21, Paul prays, if you remember this, going back several weeks, I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all, listen to the words, all rule and authority and power and dominion, every spiritual demonic force and present darkness, everything and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. When you come to Jesus, you have a king. You're in a battle, but the battle has already been won. You still must fight, and he gives you the resources to fight. But one day he'll come again and clean it all up. And he'll bring an end to all darkness and all evil and all principalities and all authority that wages itself against him. It's an unfolding victory, a victory that was set in motion, not yet fully manifest, but it will be one day soon. Come, Lord Jesus. But here's our hope today. You're fighting as one who already has the victory. That's good hope. You're not fighting a losing battle. You are not fighting a faceless enemy, afraid even paralyzed, that you might lose. You're not fighting as a fighting community in your faith, in your prayers, in your relationships, afraid that you might lose. You're fighting with a sense of guaranteed victory because Jesus is your king and he's fought this battle for you. Jesus is your king. Jesus is your king. Will you receive him today? Maybe afresh. Or maybe today for the first time. It's a good day to do that. It's a good day. Let's pray. So Jesus, we come to you asking that you would impress upon our hearts even more deeply what it means to wear the king's armor, what it means to let you, to, you, let you fight on battles that we would surely lose ourselves. But because you are able, we are able. In Christ, by the power of your Spirit, we pray this with great hope. Amen.